And of course, this story from the Gospel of Luke about an occasion when Jesus became known in the breaking of the bread. This happens on the evening of the first Easter. Now on that same day, two of them are going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and walked with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, what were you discussing with each other while you walked along? And one of them said, whose name was Cleopas, Are you the only one in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in this town this weekend? Jesus asked them, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in word and in deed, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They were at the tomb on that morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who told them that he was alive. And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus unfolded the scriptures for them pertaining to himself. And as they came near to the village to which they were going, Jesus walked ahead as if to go on. But Cleopas and his friend urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us because it's almost evening and the afternoon is far spent. And so Jesus went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so, as you can plainly tell, this story is partly inspired by the story we looked at last week when Abraham invited three strangers into his modest home and these three strangers turned out to be God and two of God's celestial ambassadors. Likewise, in this story, these two grief-stricken friends invite a stranger into their home and it turns out that all along they have been talking and walking and dining with Jesus himself. In the lofty jargon of biblical scholarship, this story is called a Christophany an appearance of the risen Christ. He's always with us. How and when and where does the ordinarily unseen presence of the risen Christ become palpable and near and real to us? I'm glad you asked. Three ways. Walk the way, tell the story, and break the bread. Christ becomes real to us when we walk the seven miles to Emmaus with each other, when we find out what it's like to walk a mile in someone else's shoes, to care another's burden, when we wipe away each other's tears and laugh at each other's jokes and commiserate with the bears and rejoice with the packers. Maybe I've told you before about my friend Linda from my church in Connecticut. Linda was part of a prison ministry. And so every month she drove up the 36 miles from Greenwich to Danbury, Connecticut, where the Danbury Federal Penitentiary for Women 
was located. The federal pen in Danbury is actually the real-life location for that Netflix series, Orange is the New Black. Genji Cohen moved the story a few miles west to the fictional town of Litchfield, New York, but Piper Kerman, who wrote the book, was incarcerated in Danbury. And so nobody from Linda's family has ever been incarcerated, but she drives up there every month to visit with these women. Would it surprise you to learn that many, many times the female inmates in these prisons are abandoned by their families? This is not true of the men. The wives and the children continue to visit and care for their menfolk for the duration of their sentences. But for the women, they are often abandoned by their families. In some cases, it's the inmates themselves who forbid their families from visiting them because they are ashamed of themselves. And one inmate named Jillian has children living in Brooklyn, which is about 70 miles south of Danbury. And that distance of 70 miles says Jillian, makes her feel as if she is dead. Her words. She can't help her children with their homework. She can't dry their tears. But Linda has three children too. And Linda can listen to what it's like not to be able to care for your own children. And of her visits with Linda, Jillian says they can take the pain away for a while. Sometimes it seems like I'm going out to lunch at a fancy restaurant. And so there they are, the two of them, Linda, this Greenwich matriarch, and Jillian, the federal inmate, just the two of them in that prison visitation center. But suddenly, there's somebody sitting next to them. Who is the third? T.S. Eliot has this wonderful passage from the Wasteland. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count... There are only you and I together. But when I look ahead in the white road, there is always another walking beside you. Who is that on the other side of you? Mr. Elliot says that this passage was inspired by the Antarctic explorations of British explorer Ernest Shackleton on an exhibition during the uh, First World War. Commander Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, was trapped in sea ice. And they hung out by the ship for weeks, hoping that it would be freed or that it would drift closer to safety. But eventually the ice crushed the ship and it sank. And this meant that Commander Shackleton and his crewmates had to row lifeboats and walk hundreds of miles to safety at a whaling station. And at one point, Commander Shackleton and two of his crew members had to walk 36 straight hours across an ice shelf one mile thick. It was 40 degrees below zero. And in his journals, the explorer speaks of a ghostly but palpable companion who seemed to be walking the way with them. At the limit of their endurance and the extremity of their dying hope, it looked to them as if they were not alone. Who is the third? This made poet Eliot think of Emmaus. So we walk the way with each other. Also, we tell the story, yes? Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted the Scriptures to them, applying to Him. How the Scriptures predicted His life and death and resurrection. In the hearing of the Word, Jesus becomes palpably present, yes? That's why we come here every seventh day. 
to hear this old, old story over and over and over again until it becomes part of our flesh and blood and sinew and synapse and enlightens our minds and shapes our character. I don't think I have to say anything more about that, right? The often hidden presence of the risen Christ becomes palpable when we tell that old, old story. Walk the way, tell the story, most importantly, break the bread. Yes, Luke tells us that when Jesus broke the bread, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Luke says that Jesus took the bread, blessed the bread, broke the bread, and gave the bread to them. Where have you heard that language before? Surely you recognize that 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 is coded, sacramental language. You hear it every time we celebrate the sacrament here, those hard, active, monosyllabic, Anglo-Saxon verbs. Took, blessed, broke, gave. That's what Jesus spoke at the Last Supper in the Gospels. That's what he said at the feeding of the 5,000. Katie preached about this a couple of weeks ago. And so this is the first instance of a celebration of the Eucharist in the history of the Christian church. And so what this story means to say, I think, is that the sacrament is a numinous experience. The Eucharist is a thin place. The membrane separating the human from the divine is porous and diaphanous, and Jesus sneaks through. But I wonder if there's more to it than that. I wonder if maybe Christ comes close beyond the celebration of the sacrament. Or to put it another way, maybe we should be watchful for the presence of the risen Christ in the sacrament of the quotidian, in the sacredness of the everyday. Because maybe for you, your most cherished, numinous moments don't happen around the communion table, but around your ordinary breakfast table. Yes? When a teenager reveals her secret struggles for the first or a rare time, when you overcome your masculine reticence to tell your wife why you are still madly in love with her after 30 years, when the conversation turns toward the existence or not of God after confirmation class at Sunday dinner, when the family plans a collective service project, My daughter is the quiet, reserved member of my family. She keeps her own counsel. She never dominates a conversation. But if you get to know her, after a while, it's clear that she uses her private, silent time to dream up these provocative queries that's meant to deepen the communion between the family's members. She's been doing this since she was 12 years old. And so there will be 15 of us around our Thanksgiving dinner. And there will be six conversations, vocal and loud around the table. And then if they die down just for a second, just for an instant, Taylor will break in with, so what book changed your life most radically? She's been doing this since she was 12 years old. Who should win the Best Actor Oscar next spring? What's your favorite fictional hero of all time? What's your favorite movie movie that nobody else around this table has seen? What would you do if you were God? And then each of us, even the most shy and retiring, gets a chance to reveal our inner thoughts. And there is a deeper communion between us. Those little queries are social magic. And sometimes 
when we break bread together in my family, Jesus shows up. It's the sacrament of the quotidian. Who's the third sitting with you? My friend Marcia knows more about etiquette than Miss Manners. She throws these elegant dinner parties where everything is just perfectly in place. Once in a while, she invites Kathy and me. And true, Marcia also invites everybody's dogs. And I don't know what Miss Manners would say about that, but who cares? And at one of these events, Marcia sat me next to this sparkling, witty person. Stephanie has two teenagers who actually are pretty famous around here. And she has two younger brothers as well. Her little brother Josh is tall and lean and handsome. He excelled academically and athletically at Choate and Yale, where he was a star hockey player. Now he's a, a thriving father and businessman in Lake Forest. And so all through Stephanie's early life, through high school and college and beyond, when she met a new acquaintance for the first time, and introduced herself, the person, her interrogator, would get a look of awe on their face, and they would say, Are you Josh Rabjohn's big sister? As if they wanted an autograph, as if she were a minor celebrity. Now, Stephanie's other brother is named Christian, and when this happened, Christian was 41 years old. Christian had been born 10 weeks early, with severe birth defects. He'd never spoken a word in his entire life. For 39 of his 41 years, he lived at a home for the differently abled Misericordia in Chicago. Christian was about the size of a 10-year-old child, and life was so difficult for him that his challenges eventually took their toll on his body, and he looks a little bit like Benjamin Button. But he was so charming and so universally beloved at Misericordia that he became a minor celebrity. And so Stephanie was so delighted after all these years of hearing, are you Josh Rabjohn's older sister? Somebody she didn't know came up to her and she introduced herself and, she, and this person said, are you Christian Rabjohn's older sister? As if he wanted an autograph, as if she were a minor celebrity. Now this little person who has never spoken a word becomes this huge presence in everybody's life at Misericordia. And so because I broke bread with Stephanie that night because of my friend Marcia, I got a chance to meet, Ste uh, meet Christian for the, for the first time and for a very brief time. A while back, I went to the hospital to visit Christian because he'd had uh, minor surgery, but something went wrong and he got a terrible infection and pneumonia set in and he was so ill that we thought he was going to die. He actually survived that incident, but we thought he was going to die at the time. And so the chaplain from Misericordia came to give last rites. And I was there to hear the chaplain's beautiful prayer. He said, Lord, thank you for Christian's beautiful life. He taught us that you don't have to be perfect to make a huge difference in the life of everybody around you. And so that was the first and the last time I ever met Christian, so I didn't know him very well. But Stephanie and that chaplain made me think that he lived up to his name, Christian.
Never knew them either. Stephanie or Christian before that dinner party, but in the breaking of the bread that evening, this common dinner party, it was a moment of grace and gospel for me, a sacrament of the quotidian. So we walk the way and we tell the story and we break the bread and you never know who will show up. Who is that sitting next to you? Who is the third? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.